So we continue our study of Ruth today. Uh, last week, we left Ruth coming back in with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back into Bethlehem, Naomi's hometown, uh, where Naomi cr- basically cries out and says, uh, the Lord, I went away full when I left Bethlehem. I had a husband, I had two sons. My husband, my two sons have died. I've come back empty in spite of the fact that Ruth is right next to her. And so Ruth has pledged her support of her mother-in-law and has decided to care for her in a huge, risky, uh, almost like throwing her life away to love her mother-in-law who is bitter. Uh, And all of this, of course, took place because Ruth has come to find uh, faith and confidence in the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, and has received his loyal covenant love which enables her to love her mother-in-law in this manner. One of the things I like to do when I'm doing a discovery Bible study, talking to particularly to people who are not familiar with Christianity and may not even be familiar with the Bible is we'll, we'll study the Bible together and we'll ask two questions. What does the text say about God? And what does the text say about people? And that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at this text and, and ask ourselves the question, what does this text teach us about God? And what does this text teach us about ourselves, about us? And so let's look at that first question. What does this text in Ruth 2 ta- tell us about God, teach us about God? And I just want to give it to you right off the bat and then demonstrate it from the text. The first and, and most important thing I think this particular chapter teaches us is that God is orchestrating the details of our lives with loyal love. God is taking your life and he's orchestrating the details of it. God is sovereign over the details of your life and he's sovereign in working the details of your life and he's doing this out of a reservoir of deep abiding loyal love. That's who God is and that's what he does. Let's take a look at and see how the the writer of the book of Ruth describes this. We'll go back up to verse 22 in chapter 1. It's at the end of this first chapter, a chapter of loss. Naomi loses her husband, her two sons. Uh, Ruth, her Moabite daughter-in-law, decides to come with her. In verse 22, it says this. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, when you read that in English, you just say, well, the, the narrator is just giving us some facts here. But actually, the way it's constructed, the narrator is trying to suggest that they just happened to come back to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. If you go back to Ruth 1 verse 1, it's precisely because of a lack of harvest. There was a famine in the land. And Bethlehem means house of bread. So the house of bread has no bread. That's why Ruth, uh, and, I mean, that's why Naomi and her husband Elimelech and her two sons went to Moab in the first place because of the famine. But now as they come back, Naomi with her Moabite daughter-in-law, the narrator is sort of is suggesting they came back at the beginning of barley harvest, which would allow them about a month to six weeks of harvesting that they could be involved in to provide for themselves. And the narrator is is somewhat suggesting this looks like a coincidence, but God is really in charge. 
you know, the narrator gives us a few more clues as well to describe how God orchestrates the details of Ruth's life and Naomi's life and our lives as well. Verse 1 of chapter 2, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now we're going to get to Boaz in a minute. The narrator is just letting us know that Naomi had a relative, a relative of her deceased husband. His name was Boaz. He's a worthy man. He's a man of character and he's a man of power. That's what worthy man would mean. So the narrator introduces us to that and then goes on to verse 2. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain. After him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So what Ruth does immediately upon returning to Bethlehem, it almost feels like the very next day after they arrived in Bethlehem, Ruth is out the door early to go glean because she's got to figure out a way to provide for her, for Naomi. And of course, being a single woman, being a widow woman, being a woman in that culture without a father, without a brother, uh, without a husband, she would have been extremely vulnerable in all kinds of ways to work out in the fields. But she goes and does it. Why? Because she has a, 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 an amazing sacrificial love for her mother-in-law, all generated because of her, the, the love that she has received from God Almighty. So Ruth begins to go, gets permission from her mother-in-law to go to a field. She's not sure will be safe, but she's got to go because she's made a commitment to her mother-in-law. And so she goes, verse three. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You don't see this in English. I know it's frustrating, but actually two times in that verse, it says that Ruth chanced upon a chance that she finds herself gleaning in the field of Boaz. In other words, what the writer is doing in the original language, he's using hyperbole. He said she chanced upon a chance that she ends up in the field of Boaz, meaning this is not simply coincidence. God is orchestrating the details of Ruth's life and gets her into the field that just happens to be owned by a relative of Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. It's by design. God is silently but very powerfully moving in the life of Ruth and Naomi. And he moves silently sometimes and quietly and in an understated way, he's doing the same thing in our lives. God is orchestrating the details of our lives according to his loyal love. And that's what we will learn about God. We have another clue to the text, verse four. And then it says, and behold, as Ruth chances upon the chance to end up in the field of Boaz, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. So again, the way the, the, the narrator is recalling the story here, he says, and behold, Boaz just happens to show up on the very day Ruth is in the field. All of this is by design of the narrator trying to show us that God orchestrates the details of our lives according to his loyal love That this is the kind of God we're dealing with in the Bible. This is the kind of God that the true God is all about. This is the God that Ruth is engaging with. 
I want to point out one other thing, and we looked at a little bit last week, but uh, we'll get back to Boaz in a second. Boaz is going to come on the scene. He greets the reapers. The reapers greet him. He's a worthy man, powerful and good character. He's going to do a lot of nice things for Ruth. We'll get to that in a second. And when Ruth begins to thank Boaz for all the kindnesses that he shows her, in verse 10, she says, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. What I think we underestimate is when Ruth comes back with Naomi, the whole town is talking about it. The whole town is amazed that this Moabite widow has attached herself to Naomi. And everybody sees the incredible commitment that she has made, the incredible outpouring of love that Ruth has made to her mother-in-law. And in verse 12, Boaz says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And here's the phrase again. I mentioned it last week. We need to see it again. Under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In other words, not only is the text telling us that God is orchestrating the details of Ruth and Naomi's life. They happen to come back at just the perfect time at the, end of, at the beginning of barley season. Ruth happens as she goes out. She just happens to be in the field where Boaz, a relative of, 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 of Naomi's uh, deceased husband. And it just happens that on the day that Ruth finds this field that God directs her to, all of a sudden Boaz shows up. And then, of course, it's reminding us that Ruth has done all this for her mother-in-law because she has taken shelter under God himself, the God who loyally loves us, the God who loves us, not because of our performance, but because of his faithfulness, not because we earn his love, because he freely gives it by grace. This is the God that Ruth has come to understand, to believe, to follow. God is orchestrating the details of your life according to his loyal love. This is the God that we have to come to grips with. This is the God that we're called to worship. This is the God we're called to follow. Now, I want to say a couple things about this. Because I think sometimes we struggle to understand and believe and, and operate according to the idea that God is sovereign, he's in control, and his control is not separated from his love for us. But it, it, sometimes it's easy sometimes, I've heard people do this, where, where they, they understand God's sovereignty, but they've distorted God's sovereignty to, to make them passive, well, God is in control, so I just gonna, you know, I'm just going to sit here, and if God moves me somewhere, I'll move. But if he doesn't move me, I'm going to stay right here. I know, I know, uh, I was a youth pastor many years ago. I know young people who told their parents that God had not prompted them to study for the test, and so they didn't need to study for the test. That's not the right view of sovereignty. I lived overseas for a bit, and I lived in a place where almost every conversation ended up with somebody saying, if God wills. Inshallah was the phrase, right? 
if God wills. So you get a taxi driver and you say, hey, can you take me downtown? And the guy would say, if God wills, inshallah. And, and of course, I'm like, if God wills, okay, I know God is in charge, but what are you going to do? Are you going to drive me there or somewhere else? I began to get a little bit frustrated too because every time I had a conversation with one of my neighbors, one of my friends, and we'd, we'd have a plan, we're going to meet in a cafe at two. And they'd say, yeah, we'll meet at two, inshallah, if God wills. And what that started, I started to understand what that meant was if my friend didn't show up at two, it wasn't his fault because God didn't will it. If God wills, I'll be there at two, but I don't know if I'm going to be there at two and I'm not necessarily going to plan to be there at two. And finally, I found myself telling people when they would say, inshallah, I would say, don't inshallah me. Are you going to be there at two or not? Well, that sovereignty, understanding that God orchestrates the details of your life according to his loyal love should not make you passive. Ruth isn't passive. Ruth understands this God. She, she's following this God and she's taking massive action. She's taking risky action to love her mother-in-law. When you understand that God is ordering the, the details of your life according to his loyal love, it doesn't make you p- passive. It makes you be able to step out in faith and to do risky things that God calls you to do as necessary. On the other hand, I think sometimes when people hear, God orchestrates the details of my life according to his loyal love. When you hear a phrase like that, I know some believers struggle with that because God hasn't done the things that they've wanted him to do. They've got brokenness in their life. They've got unanswered prayer. They've got lots of suffering that they are involved, that they're experiencing. And they say to themselves, if God is orchestrating the details of my life according to his loyal love, why does my life look like this? Why didn't God do this? Why is God's plan not including this? And we sometimes can get into a, a situation where we're demanding that God fulfill our desires for how the world ought to work, and particularly our lives, that God deals with our trials and our suffering on our timetable in the ways we think it ought to be resolved. And if he doesn't, we then get frustrated at his sovereign and loving control of our life. And that's not, that's not good either. We begin to shake our fist at God because God isn't operating according to the way we think he ought to operate in the timetable that we demand happens. God is sovereign. He orchestrates the details of our lives in as he sees fit according to his loyal love, but on his timetable, in his way, in his good plan. I think one of the challenges for us we see it here. The narrator mentions it to in Ruth. I think we fail to see and we fail to remember how God has worked in orchestrating the details of our life. And when we have a few unanswered, you know, maybe they're big, pretty big unanswered prayers, pretty big suffering that God hasn't fixed yet. We forget all the other things that God has done in our life where he is in big ways and small ways, orchestrated the details of our life according to to his loyal love. We forget that. We can't fully embrace this sovereign and good God who is the true God. Let me give you two stories from my life. Um, I, this is, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or so. I was, I was in another church. I wasn't here at Stonehill Church. 
Uh, it was in another church. There were some uh, difficulties in the church. Uh, there was conflict. It wasn't me per se, but there was some conflict uh, at the leadership level that really burdened me. And I'm, I'm not prone to sort of discouragement, but I was pretty discouraged. And in the midst of this discouragement, I got invited to go to a conference where there's going to be a thousand other people from a group of churches. It's kind of a denominational gathering. Thousand people from this denomination were going to be there. And they invited a hundred people from outside their denomination. One of those was me. And I decided to go to this thing, this conference. And I said, before I went to, got to this conference, I said to myself, I am not going to tell anybody at this conference how bad things are right now with me. I don't want to turn the whole thing into a, like a, a, a therapy session for Tracy, right? I'm not going to lie to anybody. I'm going to focus on the positive. And there were many positive things going on. And I'm going to tell, when I meet people, I'm just going to say, here are the positive things. I'm going to be upbeat. I'm just going to learn what I need to learn at this conference. And that's it. And so that was my plan. I get to the conference a little early. I, uh, the first guy who meets me is one of the pastors from this organization from Boston. Comes up, he asks me, he says, how are you doing? I tell him where I am. And I focus on the positive things. I'm very upbeat. So he doesn't counsel me afterwards and gather people to pray for me. And I thought, well, that went pretty well. This is good. The conference starts three minutes into the conference. Practically, they have all of the guests stand up and they cheer for us. Yay! we're so glad you're here. We're going to pray for you. So they get together and pray for me. And so there's 25 people praying for me. And the guy that's going to pray for me is the guy I met 10 minutes earlier from Boston. And he starts to pray for me. And of course, I'm thinking, I didn't tell him anything, you know. He's just going to pray for me. This is going to be nice. And he starts off his prayer like this. I haven't told him anything of the discouragement I'm having. And he goes, dear God, I want to pray for Tracy. I sense that he's really discouraged right now. I'm like, well, who told him that? And I really sense there might be some unresolved conflicts. And I'm like, what? And he went on and he just prayed this really beautiful prayer that met the needs of my soul. And we can just say, well, it was, it was a coincidence. No, I don't think so. There was one little example of God orchestrating the events of my life to give me what I needed in that moment because we have a God who is, who is sovereign, who orchestrates the details of our life, and we have a God who is full of loyal love that he pours out on us. That's what that was about. And of course, it's even more complicated than that because you have to get an invitation to go to this conference to begin with. And somebody I hardly knew, but kind of knew about me was the one who got me an invitation to it. So God had to go to a lot of trouble to get me to that conference to get somebody to pray for me in this period of deep discouragement. God orchestrates the details of your life according to his loyal love. Tell me another story. I've had a lot of time to reflect upon these. So I've been thinking about lots of stories of how God did these kinds of things for me. And as I thought about how did I come to faith in Christ? Um, um, my mother grew up in a home where she was not allowed to go to church when she was a young girl. The family had been a victim of a, of a religious in a cult kind of situation in the family. So they didn't go to church. They were suspicious of church. They didn't want my mom to go to church. But when my mom was nine, my, she got the first permission to go to a church 
during a vacation Bible school for kids. And when my mom was there, she heard the gospel for the first time and came to Christ. My father grew up in church and never heard the gospel. So he's in church every week, but he's not hearing the gospel at all. Meanwhile, what happened in Oklahoma City back there in the mid-50s, Billy Graham came to town. Some of you may know this story, but Billy Graham came to Oklahoma City, preached for a while, and I think they extended his stay for about 30 days in Oklahoma City, and there was a mini revival in Oklahoma City. Lots of high school students came to know Jesus Christ. Not my dad. He didn't know about Billy Graham. He didn't even know about that because in his church, they weren't talking about that, 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 that event. So a bunch of high school kids come to faith in Christ. And one of those students who came to faith in Christ at the Billy Graham conference invites my dad to come play softball. My dad went and played softball. While he's playing softball, they invite him to the after, you know, softball Bible study. He goes to the Bible study. And for the first time, he hears the gospel at age 16. And then, of course, a few years later, when they get married and have me, now I am able to hear the gospel because my mom and dad, through a series of coincidences, finally were able to hear the gospel and be brought to Christ so that when I was a young boy, I could hear Jesus Christ from, from an early age and put my faith and confidence in Christ when I was, you know, before I was seven years old. And all this to say is that's God orchestrating the events of my life because of his loyal love for my good and for his glory. And he's doing the same thing in your life, whether you recognize it or not. And I think one of the interesting things we all ought to do is take a little time this afternoon or this week and recount the different ways God has demonstrated his sovereign, detailed care of you through his loyal love by orchestrating the events of your life. Because that's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of God we worship. Now, why this is so crucial is, as until you understand and wrap your heart and mind around this God who is sovereign and good, unless you are vitally connected with that God, the true God, the God of the Bible, you're you're not going to be able to love other people the way we ought to love people unless you're wrapped up with this God in his loyal love and his direct and intentional and specific sovereign control over the details of your life. Well, that's what we know about. That's what we learn about God from this text. What do we learn about ourselves? And very simply, what we learn in this text is that our love to other people must, by definition, break down the barriers that exist between people. Our love for other people needs to break down barriers. That's what we learn from this text. And let's, uh, let's dive in as we look at Boaz here. Go back to verse 5. Uh, Boaz has come. God's orchestrating his arrival on the, in the field in verse 4. Verse 5, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? He sees that Ruth is there gleaning in the field. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. What you need to understand is the Mosaic law that governed uh, the people of God, Israel at the time, had prescribed for poor people, for widows, orphans, and for aliens, foreigners, 
What they encourage landowners to do is not to glean your whole field and get every last batch of barley out of your barley field, but, that, but to leave the, the edges of, of your property um, ungleaned, so to speak, unharvested, so that the poor, and Ruth would fit, fit two of the three categories of a poor person, she was a foreigner and she was a widow, could go into those fields and gather for themselves enough food to survive. It was sort of like a work food stamp program for poor people. Now, what you need to understand as we get into verses 8 and, and beyond is we need to understand the difference in the socio, social structure between Boaz and Ruth. So I'm indebted to Paul Miller, who uh, actually made a chart of this. And and so let's just kind of think through it. The the judge, again, Ruth was written in the time of the judges. This happened in the time of the judge. The judge of Israel, whoever that was at the time, would have been the most powerful person among the, 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 in, in Israel. If there was a tribal leader, someone who was in charge of one of the 12 tribes, the acknowledged leader, that would have been the second most powerful person. And then there might have been a clan leader of the city of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was not a gigantic city, but there could have been a clan leader. And then there could have been a clan subgroup leader, which is probably where Boaz is. Boaz is number four, okay, in the social structure here. After Boaz, an older father would have been in the fifth position. And then a father, any of the fathers, would have been in the sixth position. The eldest son would have been in the seventh position. A son would have been eight. A wife would have been ninth. A daughter would have been tenth. A male servant in the household would have been eleventh. A female servant would have been twelfth. A female servant in the lower class would have been thirteenth. A resident alien would have been 14th, a male foreigner would have been 15th, and in the bottom rung of the social structure would have been a female foreigner, which was Ruth. Boaz is, is pretty near the top of the pyramid at number four. Ruth is at the bottom at, at, at 16, the bottom of the, so, the social structure of that time period. And what you see here, when Boaz shows his love for Ruth, when he shows his care for Ruth, what you are seeing is a man who is crashing through all of the barriers that normally would have separated a man with this kind of standing, Boaz and Ruth. He's not simply following the law. He does follow the law, of course. He lets her glean in the field, right? And she's getting sustenance from that. That way he's following the law of Moses for poor people. He goes way beyond that. And in so doing, he crashes through all kinds of social barriers. Let's take a look at those real quick. Verse 8. Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. She calls he calls her daughter. She has no family, no real connection to family. By calling her daughter, it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of sort of saying that she does belong. She's, he's also telling her, I want you to stay in my fields and watch, be close to my young women. Verse 9, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? He's already ensured her safety in the field. I mean, Boaz, I mean, this has got to be one of the earliest sexual harassment policies in the workplace. You say, no, there'll be none of that. 
Then he goes on to say, and when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. The young men would have probably, workers would have brought out these clay pots of water for the people who are harvesting in the fields. But he tells Ruth, you can come and drink from where my workers drink. Now, you've got to understand, the, the people working for Boaz are probably Israelites. This is a woman from Moab. By saying to come and drink in the same area with the, from the same clay jars as the others, he's, he's sort of bringing a, an equality to the situation. Unless you find that, oh, that's not that significant. It wasn't that long ago in this country, the country we live now, where people couldn't even drink out of the same water fountain. Boaz is crashing through barrier after barrier. He's in the highest of the high. He's reaching out to the lowest of the low. And in so doing, he's demonstrating that love typically breaks the barriers that normally separate people. Well, verse 10, Ruth falls on her face. She bows to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? I'm a foreigner. See, she's a foreigner. She has no rights. She has no privileges. And Boaz is giving her the rights and privileges as if she was in some sense equal with Boaz and certainly an equal member of the community. We've already looked at verses 11 and 12. Boaz says, listen, I know what you've done. I see the way you have sheltered yourself under the God of Israel. I've seen what you've done. We've all seen what you've done to your mother-in-law and the great love that you've shown her. In verse 14, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. (laughs) In other words, so she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. What happens is she's probably sitting on the outskirts of the group. She's probably not even sure she should be allowed to share a meal because sharing a meal with someone means there's a community. Sharing a meal with someone means that that there's a togetherness. There's a a dignity that she's, she's part of the group. And by inviting her to eat with them. Boaz is saying, she should be included. She's one of us. She's in. And of course, I think this offers a lot of fascinating questions for us. I know we've been in COVID, right? So the atrium doesn't quite look like the atrium um, looked before. Um, I do believe we're going to be back in that atrium with bagels in the year 2050. Soon, I hope. You think about what Boaz does here by including her in the meal. Think about middle school lunchroom, if you were a new student, or high school lunchroom, or even upper elementary school. I, I, it's it's painful to go into a new with a new group of people and decide what where can I eat? Can I be at this table? Am I allowed to be at this table? Am I going to be ball by myself? No one's going to be with me. I mean, this is a challenging thing. Boaz crushes those barriers by inviting her in. But let's think about our own atrium. Now, I know the atrium is, is, is a double-edged sword for some of you. Back in the day, pre-COVID, when there's a couple hundred people in the atrium, there's bagels everywhere. If you're an extrovert like me, you love the atrium because you see a lot of people that you think might listen to your words. That's what extroverts do, you know? But if you're an introvert, the atrium is a nightmare. Who am I going to talk to? Is anyone going to talk to me? Should I talk? Should I not? Maybe I should just sit near the bagels and put a bagel in my mouth. You know, not have to talk. 
question for us. I mean, this is the social structure of first of of, of the times of the judges, right? In our culture, it's it's not so stratified necessarily, but I suspect you have your own stratification of who's in the in-group for you and who's on the out. Are you a person who crosses barriers to show love and invite someone into the circle of your relationships? Or when you come to church, you're pretty much interested in being with the people you know already, the people you like, the people you have a relationship, the people you're comfortable with, rather than doing what Boaz did. It's a penetrating question, I would think. And how are you at work with a new employee? I mean, do you, do you go out of your way to make them feel welcome? Or do you say, hey, man, sink or swim, man, this is, you know, I, you know, it's not my problem. Boaz goes way out of his way to include Ruth. And one thing I want to say that's interesting about this passage is that it's not... The Bible is not trying to say that there's some paternalistic, that, that, that the wealthy people or people who are acknowledged leaders and are kind of in the in, the in group need to go and show love and care for the, the, those that are in the lower power structure, so to speak. You, you need to remember that, that, that Boaz's outpouring of, of love and care for Ruth, it, it came after Ruth's outpouring of love for Naomi. If you read the text and you see the way Boaz talks about Ruth and says, we all know, we all heard how you love your mother-in-law. We all heard what the, this massive sacrifice that you made. In some sense, I think Boaz's encouragement to love, love Ruth was, 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 was encouraged and deepened and motivated in part, yes, because Boaz was a worthy man, but also because he saw the power of love that Ruth had for Naomi. The lowest of the low has impacted the highest of the high. And now the highest of the high is returning the favor with this outpouring of care and love. Well, our story continues to go on. Verse 15, she rose to glean after after the meal. Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves. Do not reproach her and also pull out from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. He tells his workers, pull some of that grain out and leave it for Ruth. It's almost as if he's creating a competition among his workers. Who can leave the most for Ruth? And sort of undermine the jealousy that could have been had in that by making it almost a game. Verse 17, she gleans in the field until evening. She beats out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. This is about a month's worth of food. This is an amazing haul on day one of Ruth's hard work for her mother-in-law. Verse 18, she took it up, went to the city. Her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her food. She had leftover after being satisfied. So Ruth again brings over the leftovers from the meal back to her mother-in-law. Her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Naomi knows that Ruth could not have done this completely on her own. She had to have have help to come back with a month's worth of food. She told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. I'm going to get to the redeemers next week and the week after. But I want to end here with verse 20. Notice what Naomi says. She says to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaking the living or the dead. Naomi has already begun to think about the fact that Boaz is the field that Ruth ends up in. He's the one who's caring for her. He's a near relative. He's the possibility that he might be able to redeem the family. A redeemer, as Naomi says, was a provision in the Mosaic law to care for families that were on the verge of dying. And a redeemer could do a number of things for a family. A redeemer could restore the property of a family who got into financial trouble. It could purchase a relative out of slavery. He could avenge a relative's killing. He could receive a restitution. He could assist in a lawsuit. And he could provide an heir through marriage to himself. So he's one of the potential redeemers for Naomi and her broken family that's on the verge of dying out. But notice what she says to her. He says, may he be blessed, verse 20, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness is not forsaken the living or the dead. She's acknowledging that Boaz has helped Ruth and Naomi, the ones who are alive, but he may be able to be the one who helps the dead, even Elimelech, by providing land and inheritance and children. But what's interesting about the Hebrew construction of the phrase, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead, there's a real debate on whether that refers to the Lord who showed kindness to them, or does it refer to Boaz who showed kindness to them? It's iffy. And I think what is going on here is it's both and. What Naomi is acknowledging is that God, the one who sovereignly orchestrates the details of our life according to his, his loyal love, is, is, is displaying that love in part through Boaz. And so, what does this text teach us about ourselves? That we ought to be people who love others in such a way that we break down the typical barriers that those folks have with us in a way that honors God, provides care for those that are in difficulty, for those who may be marginalized, in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So what I want us to do is I want us to pray. Bow your heads. I want to pray that God would help us to grab a hold of his sovereignty and his love. And I'm going to pray that that love and sovereignty and the details of our lives that God orchestrates would translate into us loving other people in the kinds of ways that break down barriers in ways that display the beauty and glory of God's love for us. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I think each of us, if we're honest, struggle to believe that you really are orchestrating the details of our life. And certainly we struggle to believe that you're doing that according to your loyal love. I pray particularly for those who have unanswered prayer requests and who are suffering, that you would remind them and remind all of us of the specific ways you have cared for us. Things that may have looked like happenstance, but were part of your intentional plan for us. And I pray that as we focus and wrap our hearts and minds around that God, the true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, that that sovereign and God who's full of loyal love would motivate us and empower us to love people around us.
that we would be known as individuals and as a church, as a place where the community of believers outdoes itself, loving one another in these eye-popping, barrier-breaking ways. Lord, I even pray as we, as we, we open up the church, uh, hopefully more and more, and the atrium gets back to the way it was. I pray that in that atrium, people that are in there will be cared for and loved on and invited into the circle and, and, and cared for and brought in by us. I pray that we would be people in our neighborhoods who reach out to new people, struggling people, break down barriers and love the way God loves us with this barrier-breaking, powerful, loyal, said love that he's given us. Help us, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.